0: The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before Him is a devouring fire. Around Him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that He may judge His people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare His righteousness, for God Himself is judge. Selah. Those are the first six verses of Psalm 50, which is the psalm appointed for today, Thursday, June the 3rd, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thank you for being with me today. I'm, uh, still, we're working through the books of Deuteronomy, Second Chronicles, and still in the Gospel of Luke. <clears throat> um, the, the two important words for today are justice and fairness. Justice is the primary uh, word in the old testament lesson and fairness would be the word in second corinthians that paul uses there and both of them are trying to express the same sort of concept it's funny when i was uh, when my kids were little one of the things that they hated more than anything in the world was was the fairness lecture because we'd be somewhere and one of them would say something didn't fair <laughs> and so we would undertake to talk about what's fair in life and, and that life isn't a fair proposition. That's not the way things work. That that we typically, when we're talking about fairness, equity, and justice, we're comparing up the scale, not down the scale. And So we, we only choose to look in one direction for what's fair, the fact that somebody else has more than me means that life's not fair. Well, you know, there are other people who might use me as the example for fairness. You know, they might say it's not fair that John has what John has. And so there, that's, there's always the problem of how we choose to compare. I was with somebody one time, and they made the comment about, I guess I'll never have the big house that I always wanted. Well, we were sitting at about a 5,000-square-foot house that they owned at the time they said that. And, and there's always a comparison thing that goes on that, that when we talk about fairness and it always looks in only one direction to compare itself. And, and and the problem is if you look in the other direction, if you look down the economic scale from where you are, then what you might find is is that you have much to be thankful for. And you might actually find that your real problem in life is you're not thankful enough. I know that's been true in my life, certainly. And then the other word is justice that we're going to be talking about today. And, and what is justice? And how do, we, how do we get to stuff like justice? And, and what does all of that look like? I can remember also having a long conversation with my daughter-in-law several years ago about economic systems. And we're talking about capitalism, socialism, and all the other possibilities along that spectrum. And, and what is a biblical view of um, a, a, a right sort of economic system? And that's a good question. It's an excellent question, in fact. And, and if we had a biblical economy, then there would be more, quote, fairness, and there would be more justice, uh, economically and otherwise. Because uh, it, economic justice in a biblical term is, is that, that people look out for their own interests, and for those who are unable to look out for their own interests, then the community looks out for them. Um, but, it, but it really does come down to, are you able to look out for your own interests? But there's also a brotherly affection that goes on there, that if, if a fellow Jew comes into economic distress for one reason or another, then, then it's incumbent upon uh, the rest of the family to step in and help out with that problem. It could mean that, that I'm going to buy your land for the next season of time until the Jubilee year or the sabbath year for instance and then you're going to be an employee on your own land but ultimately that land reverts to you because the lord owns all of the land and essentially they rent it in perpetuity uh, and it belongs to families and so the there was always an out there was always a way for for people to um, to make it but to maintain the possession of the land that they owned In places we've been in the past, I've seen certainly um, in in places like uh, Pawleys Island, South Carolina, we saw there were a lot of um, uh, black families in Pawleys that owned property that that joined or abutted or whatever up to Highway 17. And when we first moved there, there was a lot of that land that was still vacant and undeveloped. And over time, the problem became that, that taxes... On that land went up and up and up as more commercial development happened and it cost the people their land they couldn't afford to continue to pay the taxes so they ended up having to sell land that in many cases had been ancestral land going back to the end of the Civil War and so that that's kind of the the genesis of a lot of the arguments that we're going to be looking at today and what, what does justice mean and how do we how do we work towards justice in our own lives and how do we work towards justice in 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 the larger world and so in Deuteronomy that there's an injunction to appoint judges and officers in all the towns, according to the tribes, and they'll judge with righteous judgment, not taking a bribe or showing partiality. Um, it's only justice, blind justice is what, what's being um, proscribed here, that you may live and inherit the land the Lord it, your God is giving you. And so it's 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 a matter of biblical justice. What does that look like? What is the claim to something? And, and how do we give justice to one another in a, in a particular instance of when there's harm done, I mean, life happens. Things happen, whether we intend for things to happen or not, is almost immaterial. In, in some cases, it's certainly not immaterial, but, in, it, but the establishment of law courts is one of the most important things that we do. And it's the most important thing in the land, too, because, because things happen in life, whether whether inside our control or outside of our control. And in those situations, there needs to be someone there who understands the law, who can who can bring justice to a situation. It was one of the things that Solomon was known for, right? I mean, it's the, the story of the two women both claiming that a child belonged to them. And then, you know, he manages to get justice, but he does it without actually doing justice. He, he says, cut the baby in half, and then the true mother says, no, let her have it. And so there's a way of doing justice in any situation, but that requires a lot of wisdom and the wisdom needs to come from the Lord. And so Moses, remember, had been the one doing justice with the people in the wilderness. And then his father-in-law came to him and saw that he was sitting there all day doing this. And he says, it's not good for you or the people. It's going to wear you out and it's going to kill them too. So they, Moses called together 70 of the elders and God poured out his spirit on some of them and they became judges and rulers of the people. And so they're to do this in all the towns wherever they're established. And then he goes on and he says something that, that we tend to overlook um, he, he gives a provision for them to establish a king over Israel and, and said, set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among your brothers, you shall set his king over you, but don't put a foreigner over you who's not your brother. And then he gives sort of the qualifications for that king. They can't acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. And, and those are weapons of war. Horses at that time were considered war animals. And, and so there was this power and trust in the might of, of animals and also in an alliance with Egypt. And that's an entanglement that he says is, is not OK. And one of the things Solomon did was he had many horses. And he had foreign entanglements like that. And then says he shall not acquire many wives for himself, which Solomon did, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive gold and silver. And, And that's exactly what Solomon did. It's always a huge temptation for a king to acquire these things. Because he can. Because he has the power to do so. And because he has the power and the authority, those things are drawn to him in some shape and form and fashion. And so it's always a snare that the that justice will take a second uh, back seat to that. And so, so the 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 role of that king is to care for the people under his in the land, and that's it. And when he sits on the throne, he shall write for himself a book of a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of the law and these statutes, and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or the left, so he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children, in Israel. So it's important that the king be steeped in the law, that the king be steeped in the word of God, the the Torah, the first five books of Moses, so, so that he would devote himself, in many ways, to the... The the law itself and the way that it's applied in a given situation in the land. And so he is the chief overseer of justice is kind of what's in view here for the, for the king, that, that he would uh, oversee all the justice that's being done in these towns by these judges that have been appointed and raised up among them. And so his job really has more to do with, with the people of the land and not foreign affairs, let's say. Um, he, he, he had to primarily care about his people. And he had to care about the way justice was carried out. And the reason I say that is because that's the reason he would have written that book of the law himself. And it had to be approved by the Levitical judges and the, or the Levitical priests. I mean, And the reason would be that he not um, bastardized that text in any shape, form, or fashion that would, that would then allow him to move in a different direction. If he changes some of the wording and all that or leaves anything out, but no, the, the priests had to certify that copy of the law that was written by the hand of the king himself <clears throat> in order that he might always be held accountable to it. It's the similar kind of an idea as a bar mitzvah. Because in a bar mitzvah, what, what's happening there is, is it means son of the law, if you want to know the truth. It means son of the commandment, son of the law. And so what, what's happening is is that young man, or young woman, in the case of a bat mitzvah, is going to stand and recite a portion of the law, and they're going to recite it in Hebrew. and the, And what that's saying is, I am now responsible for this because I've proven I can read it. So it, it's he's no longer under the tutelage of his parents. He is now on his own, and he is responsible for the law on his own. And that's the same thing that that's the motivation for the king writing this. It's to say, you wrote it all, you copied every single bit of it. You should know every word of that law, and you should apply it in strict justice in getting this thing right and so in the in the gospel jesus talks about a a parable of an unrighteous judge who, who neither feared god nor respected man but there was a widow there who kept coming to him and saying give me justice against my adversary and for a while he refused but finally he said to himself though i neither fear god nor respect man yet because this widow keeps bothering me i'll give her justice so that she won't beat me down by her continual coming he said, if you've got justices like that, you've got judges like that, well, here's the, here's the good news. The good news is, is that God will give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night. And so we're um, enjoined to pray day and night, asking for justice, crying out for justice. Too often, mostly what we're crying out for is justice for ourselves. Um, we need to be just as adamant in coming to the Lord about justice for those who need it. And in many cases, they they need more than we do. And so we, we've got to take on the concerns and the cares of our brothers and sisters. We've got to be able to, to, to be those people who do care about justice and who care about mercy as well. But we've got to be those people who care about that. And so there is a, a proper place for social justice and a crying out to the Lord for that. And we, we've got to be part of that. We, we have to pursue justice wherever there's injustice, not just in our own lives, but in the world as well. And so Jesus promises that if we do that, then, then the Lord will give us that justice speedily. He says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? It's an odd way to end that little thing, right? Will he find faith on earth? What does that mean? Will he find faith on earth? And, and the question is, is that do we believe that God is indeed a righteous judge, and that we can come to him and we can share those concerns with him and those prayer concerns with him, or are we going to take justice into our own hands? Are we going to trust him? And that's kind of the problem with the king in Deuteronomy, and that's the reason that he's, he's told not to build up for himself horses and wealth and all that, because what's his trust in? What's he ultimately going to rely upon? And, and that's an issue for us as well. How, what are we relying on for justice? Are we relying on it from the Lord, or are we trusting men for that thing? And finally, in the 2 Corinthians passage, Paul is reaching out to the Corinthians. He's asking them to provide for the needs of the saints in other places. And he holds up the example of the uh, churches in Macedonia, who apparently at that time were going through some economic hardship. And yet, in spite of that, they desired desperately to provide for those who were were in greater need than they were. And so he holds up the Macedonian churches for the uh, edification and the challenge, I guess, to the Corinthian churches to do the same. Because he goes on to say that they, the Macedonians, gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And so he he encouraged them. And then he says, but as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, earnestness, and our love for you, see also that you excel in this act of grace. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. So he's calling them who, in a, who have an abundance at that time. He says, you know by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that although he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And so he says that you wanted to do this, you, you desired to do this a year ago, and, and it was started, and now finished doing it as well, so that your readiness and desiring may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. And he, so he's holding them up and he's challenging them to step up and, to, and that their abundance at the present time might supply the need of their, their brothers and sisters in other places who now have that need so that when, when the situation is reversed and they have abundance and you have need, that, that there would be fairness. And it's an interesting way of looking at how do we, what is our responsibility vis-a-vis other Christians and other churches, and, and how are we connected with those? Do we see ourselves as connected with other Christians and other churches in other places in such a way that we're ready to provide for their need? Or do do we just kind of consider them, well, they're the people over there and that's just how it is over there. And, and, and we need to be prepared and we need to be yoked with, I think, um, churches that, that have needs as well and, and that we would be willing to supply as brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter where we are, for those needs. And, and I know that we, when we formed the um, Anglican Mission in America, we were we were deeply connected with Rwanda for instance, and in, in the Rwandese church had a lot of needs at that time, and the, um, and and they legitimately had needs. I, I had been there and spent plenty of time there and knew what those needs were because it was part of what I was being asked to do for the church and so had seen those things and had a pretty good idea of where money could be used and, and help could be gained. Well, one of the things that we got involved in was an agricultural project, and we were going to buy some cows and some other uh, agricultural um, seed, actually, for... For, some, for a group of widows in a particular province. And um, I told them, okay, so we're thinking about getting you like six cows because that was what we could afford. And, and they said, no, 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 no. We just want three. What do you mean you want three? Well, and, and then they explained to me why three was the right number and not six. And it had to do with, with not being too proud, it had to do with, with not being overwhelmed by the needs of six cows because they could, they could provide from the land, they could provide the food for three cows. They couldn't provide for six cows. They would need extra money and stuff if they were going to have six. Even though it could potentially mean more, their, their goal was to leverage up from what they had to something else. And, and I think that's a beautiful way of looking at needs. If you could get people to look at their needs, including me, and say this is what I actually need and here's what I can do with what you give me and I can leverage myself up from there rather than you continuing to provide for me forever or you overwhelming me with your generosity that's now going to cost me more than I'm going to be able to make, then then I think that we would all be better off. And I, and I think that, that a true examination of need might help us all as far as fairness and justice are concerned. But it, it's an important matter, I think, for the church to consider that that we are in the West certainly abundantly prosperous. And so when we look across the world, we we need to be constantly having in mind what can we do in other places where that prosperity is is difficult to come by and how can we provide for our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world. And by doing so, it will enrich our own lives by connecting us with more and more brothers and sisters.